welcome to The Pemberley Podcast, a podcast where we discuss Jane Austen adaptations, now covering Bridgerton on Netflix. I'm Yolanda Rodriguez. And I'm Julian Davis. We're proud partners of the Frolic Podcast Network, a community made up of your favorite voices in all of Romancelandia and beyond. Keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at The Pemberley, and you can email us at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Pemberley Podcast. This week, we're going to dive into episode four of Bridgerton, but before we do that, we're going to talk a bit about what we're reading or watching, and also a fun announcement uh, of a short film we worked on that you will all get to watch soon. Jillian, what are you currently watching? Well, something that I've been watching is something that I know you've also been watching. Season four of The Crown. Tagline should be, they did Diana so dirty. Uh, (laughs) Granted, I do think that I carry this opinion because (laughs) I wound up on season four of The Crown TikTok, where basically Gen Z was rediscovering the Charles and Camilla scandal. And it's just so funny to me that like this happened, like this happened in the 80s. Like no one, none of us were born yet. These like new teenagers and young adults are like, what the heck? What? This just happened? And granted, The Crown is a fictional show, but very much based on real events. I mean, I thought this was a really great season. Never a dull moment. The bit of the controversy around that show is also they were trying to get like those warnings before the show of like, this is based on fictional, it's real people, but fictionalized events were, you know, exaggerated in some way, which actually Narcos does that. They have like those disclaimers before the show so i'm sure they were trying to get the same thing but they just pushed back and were like not on the crown so i love to read comments on tiktok it's my favorite thing and truly like 70 percent of the comments are people saying like my mom brings up diana like once a week and she's just like the royal family it was a conspiracy and they'll be like mom like diana's not talking about you or like <laughs> or like my family hates the royal family hates england hates all this stuff but loves Diana. And I just think that that's so fascinating. And like, I mean, obviously, like more that happens in that season than just this, but it's very interesting seeing the crown move into like the 1980s, which is sort of like just before our time. But like, I feel like seeing it in the 80s brought out sort of like the antiquated nature of the royal family, because like it it sort of feels like it makes a lot of sense when they're coming out of World War II. Like we don't know that world. I think it is interesting, the conversation that that it brings up. My mom loved Princess Diana in that time and was devastated after her death. I think I have a random video of her where she was just like came into my room and was like talking about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. I'm like, it's like those memes of like, no one, absolutely no one, my mom. And you know, another thing about Prince Harry. And so it's great. But I mean, you even bring up the idea of like Prince Charles becoming king, Camilla becoming queen is such a controversial thing I think especially for people of her generation getting to watch it was just all the more validating stuff like see she was tortured in there and all these things so well another funny conversation that it sparked in my house I was like explaining it to my mom and I was like yeah and in this season it's like Charles and Diana and Camilla and my mom said something like well I think they like worked it out where like Charles isn't gonna get it and it's gonna go straight to William yeah and I was like mom like did Buckingham Palace call you (laughs) like are you in on it like it was just like so weird to me that she like thought she had I mean maybe she right I kind of like don't know the facts but I'm like why do you think that like you've got this like who told you this no my mom's the same way where she's like I'm certain like they're going to skip him I'm like, I don't know what deal you know about that I don't know that the public doesn't know. But I think, I guess, all moms of that generation, they just like know that it's going to skip him. I think they had a meeting and I don't know. <laughs> and like, I don't know if anyone who's like oversees the succession like was at that meeting. But I think moms all over the world were just like, it should definitely like not go to Diana's ex-husband, right? He did her so dirty, right? Like we would never, we wouldn't stand for it. Not that it matters. 
No. I mean, because I think that the actors who portray, first of all, everyone are phenomenal, but funny enough, Josh O'Connor, who plays Prince Charles and also plays Mr. Elton in the 2020 Emma, both adaptations, he's like these slimy characters. I was watching interviews with him where he was like, I kind of took these on because I'm not anything like these men and I, I really hate what they stand for. And it made me fall in love with Josh O'Connor. <laughs> so it's like a really tricky situation where like, I, I have to hate who he plays on camera, but I'm like, but you seem so nice, you know? <laughs> it's good stuff. We've got some rising stars on our hands. <laughs> Speaking of rising stars, <laughs> let's talk about us and our good news. We made a short film and submitted it to the Jasna Young Filmmakers Contest. And we would like to announce that we won first place. Yeah, in the over 20 category, which is such a wonderful honor to receive. And we're such fans of many of the judges. The screening itself, the world's premiere, is com- coming up on this Sunday, January 24th. It's going to be at 11 a.m. Pacific time. So if you would like to join in on that virtual screening, you can register at jasnasw.org. It's a free Zoom event. So, but if you can't make it, it'll go live on Jasna Southwest's YouTube channel that same day. And we'll also be doing a more in-depth talk about the short film with our friend and director, Abby Steckler of Little Scorpion Studios, who was a big collaborator on this project. Watch our short film. We will make sure that it's everywhere. Yeah. Let's dive into episode four of Bridgerton. An affair of honor. Previously on Bridgerton, what we're coming out of is a Prussian prince arrives in town and is vying for Daphne's heart, but she, really unknown even to her own feelings, has become more smitten with the Duke. And realizing this, Simon decides to break up the ruse with Daphne. So she is a free woman now for anyone who would like to propose to her. Literally the last two scenes of episode three was Simon meeting her outside for their usual ice cream date and him just sort of like so stoic doesn't even look her in the eye, just looks ahead and is like, I can't see you anymore. We did this as a ruse. A ruse is done. You have the prince's attention. You don't need me anymore. And also my business in England is concluded. So I'm just going to go travel the world now. Bye forever. And so she's like, fine, I don't need you either. This was totally fake. And she shows up at the ball and does the whole, that was the art of the swoon, drops her fan right in front of the prince who's happy to pick it up. Oh, this is just such an aside. I very much am also on Bridgerton TikTok. Something that I've been seeing a lot is everyone is losing their minds that the prince in Bridgerton is also played by the guy who had a really small role in the sixth Harry Potter movie where like Slughorn was inviting gifted students to these dinners and there was a guy, I think his character's name was Colin or something, and he was like creepily flirting with Hermione and it was played by this guy. He also had a small role in Pitch Perfect, so. (gasps) Oh, he was the Australian with abs. Yes. So he has those two iconic roles that people know and love. And they were like, he's in this too. He's everywhere. And I mean, he's also been in Unreal. He's also been in like other shows. But I love that we just hone in on like, he had this tiny role in Harry Potter. Well, it's funny because he he definitely has this role in Bridgerton that we'll sort of elaborate on in a sec that like on paper, he's so perfect. The queen is like really pushing him to go after Daphne. She's just kind of like, you're great, but you're not the Duke of Hastings. When we pick up in this episode, Daphne and the Duke are both sort of picking up the pieces of their broken hearts. Daphne is trying to focus all her energy energy on courting the prince. He gives her a beautiful diamond necklace and it kind of becomes this thing of like, it it is a lovely necklace, but like when he puts it around her neck, all she can do is picture and hope that it's Simon doing that for her. I didn't love the necklace. I thought it was fine. I mean, obviously I'm sure it's very expensive, but I just didn't (laughs) like the look of it. But it is like a huge gesture 
to be like, you not only accepted this invitation into from the prince because he's like, thank you for coming. Also, here's this beautiful gift in front of like this whole crowd of people too. It's a very public courtship. All eyes are on them, not just from the queen's pressure, but like the whole town is looking in on them and expecting really Daphne to lock this in, like to Cressida's utter disdain of Daphne as well, because she had a moment, I think, with the prince, but she didn't lock it down. So she she missed her chance. She didn't close. She didn't she close. She didn't close. <laughs> I love Cressida. We I, I hope she gets like a better storyline. I think she's I think she's very much a product of like jealousy and female competition but I'm like I I see great things from Cressida yeah anyway the sort of very public courtship of the prince and Daphne definitely not escaped the duke's notice he is just like spending this whole episode packing up his life another TikTok-ism that I love seeing is men will literally do blah 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 before they go to therapy and I'm just like (laughs) this man would literally rather pack up his life and travel the world than go to therapy (laughs) so he is coping with this breakup working with his very good friend who's a boxing champion Mondrick he's basically only sticking around because Mondrick is going to be in a big boxing match later and the only way people are going to be betting on him is if the Duke is there like hyping him up being like this is my guy so he's sticking around to help his friend (laughs) Mondrick and his wife are just like yeah you seem pretty upset over Daphne he was like does that punching bag have a German accent I hear (laughs) he's just like (laughs) clearly they know he's upset about the prince like really upping his courtship with Daphne and they saw that like he had feelings for Daphne but he's just looking away or turning away from it and it's news to them that he's gonna be leaving town soon so they're just trying to also look out for him but also I love the wife who's like yeah we're looking out for you but you also got to look out for us so stay for this match. The prince has been invited to attend this boxing match. He asks Anthony to escort Daphne there, like bring her there so that they can have a first date at a boxing match. I found this interesting just because like, I think it's a, you know, objectively like a terrible first date idea (laughs) because he's a prince. Anthony and Daphne have a conversation about like, let's never tell mom that I'm here because it would be so inappropriate. And I'm like, oh, so you know about that. And even the prince says to Daphne, like, I'm really surprised that you're willing to come here. Most ladies aren't into this kind of thing. And I'm thinking like, they're not. So why would you like ask her anyway? But she's like, you know, I've got brothers. It's fine. The bottom line is Simon is there hyping his friend, rolling his sleeves up. Daphne notices we get the arms in slow motion. It's pretty great. (laughs) She wasn't expecting to see Simon. And of course, Simon was like, this is the last possible place he would think to see Daphne. So they're having to see each other when they both thought they wouldn't. And it's still fresh for them. They're not over each other at all. They never even fully admitted their feelings toward one another. And any talk of the future was very much so out of the question. And in contrast to that, I mean, you have the prince here who, while he hasn't made a formal proposal, he's like, definitely made his intentions known to Daphne. I grew up with many cousins running underfoot and I believe I should like the same for my children one day. If my wife were amenable, of course. You have this amazing prince who not only is like willing to move for her, is also taking into consideration like what she wants in a family, like how many kids does she want? Which isn't like is something again, this contemporary take on this world. Did people like this exist back then? Who knows? Of actually taking the wife's considerations in mind of does she want kids how many kids you're seeing like this very different kind of prince someone who you would think would come into town more entitled and just thinks he'll have his pick of whoever like this very gaston uh, approach to things but no he comes in and he's like i want to find someone who i mesh with who gets along with me and who wants to be with me it's very sweet to see him it feels like they would be like this amazing match because they both love their families they both want to have a family just things don't pan out for them as we'll see i mean in a way with simon i think that because they're like this is a ruse this isn't real it was very easy for them to be themselves around each other because there wasn't that pressure of i wonder if he likes this. I wonder if he'll want to marry me. Because it sort of wasn't real, I think they were able to be real with each other. It's 
completely different from this, where this man actually wants a future with her. Truly, this is an opportunity I think Daphne would have jumped at if she hadn't met Simon. I mean, it's kind of the classic, like it happens in The Notebook, it happens in Enchanted, it happens in, I'm just thinking of James Marsden examples right now. <laughs> <laughs> She's with the perfect guy. It's gross how perfect he is. And she would like 100% go for him. His biggest problem is that he's not the Duke. I think she's really trying to combat that. At this point, even like her mom and everyone else thinks that she and the Duke are still courting. There's sort of a hard moment between Daphne and her mother where um, she's getting ready to go to this big fancy ball and, and she's putting that sort of like huge diamond necklace on and her mom tries to be subtle, but she's like, if you wear that necklace at tonight's ball, what will the Duke say? Oh, Mama. Until you have decided to accept the prince's proposal, I simply think you should keep your mind open. Daphne, I know what I saw. What you saw was a lie. It was a ruse. And it worked. We got what we wanted. You did too. I now have a prince. You should be proud. What I wanted, dearest, was for you to have the best. Not not in terms of rank, but love. I respect the trying not to hold on to the past. She can't tell her heart how to feel. Violet Bridgerton does take a different approach than we've seen most. Regency mamas of get the highest ranking man you can get and we'll be set for life. I think and it's because of the wonderful friendship and love and marriage she had with her own late husband that she wants that for her kids. And maybe that's partially a reason why she hasn't pushed her sons who are older and should be married to get married because she's like, you know what, find that person who's right. Part of this episode crescendos at this ball that they're going to or have been invited to and so Daphne's there this is where the prince is meant to propose to her back at his estate the duke is like packing everything up and so he plans on skipping all of this like he fulfilled his duties at the boxing match his affairs in England are allegedly cleared up and then Lady Danbury is saying goodbye to him and just sort of like reminds him of what love can do And this was an interesting sort of point for a lot of people in the show in terms of like its relationship with race, because we sort of thought that it was like a Hamilton casting or like famously like the Cinderella adaptation where like it was sort of colorblind casting. This is where I think the show sort of flips it to describe more like color conscious casting. Lady Danbury basically says to Simon like, Look at our queen. Look at our king. Look at their marriage. Look at everything it is doing for us allowing us to become. We were two separate societies, divided by color, until a king fell in love with one of us. It's definitely sparked a lot of conversations, a lot of articles, which there was this really great Refinery29 article between two or three different women who are just talking about different issues within the show, but specifically around race. And the phrasing that Lady Danbury uses is like, because the king chose one of us, then, you know, we were all elevated. We could all become royalty or dukes or, you know, there's there's no limit anymore. But Simon actually says the king could really change his mind at any moment, which is such a delicate balance then. So you're saying then within this world that their racism is just like kind of right beneath the surface and at any moment it could just all fall again. So I... It was a weird choice to introduce this in episode four. Once we've already been in this world, you are now saying, oh, this isn't colorblind casting of like, we wanted this to be diverse. We're not going to explain it. It's just within the world, which I think, again, the Cinderella, Whitney Houston, Brandy adaptation was really great because you had Brandy in as the princess. We hadn't seen a black princess in like this big movie. I mean, it was a TV movie, but still in this big notable role of Cinderella before so it was really great to have her there. I think what was interesting about now introducing race into Bridgerton was this is the only time they ever mention it and they never mention it again when it it could have added so many layers and depth to all of these characters and to all the storylines. Within the Refinery29 article they reference this one scene from Scandal a Shonda Rhimes show, Carrie Washington's character is getting just like <laughs> a real talking to from her dad of like, what are you doing? Like the scandal is kind of starting to bubble out of like, she's having this affair. Spoilers, I guess, if you haven't seen I mean, the show. I, I haven't even seen the show and I know exactly yes. what this is. <laughs> <laughs> but her father is, is like lecturing her 
and has this iconic line of being like, because of who you are, because you're black, you need to work twice as hard for half of what they have. And I think if you had actually added a similar storyline to the Duke's father, that's the reason why he abandoned his child possibly. Like, because of his place in society, like he hadn't been a duke before. Maybe like because the queen was elevated into this role, now he was able to become a duke and he had this and he didn't want to lose it. So for that reason, he felt like having like this imperfect black child was going to be a stain on this dukedom in some way. I think if you had added in those layers, it doesn't make it political. It just makes it real. It does. Well, and I guess the question is, I mean, because a a lot of people have described Bridgerton as kind of a fantasy world. I guess the real question is, do we want to lean into the fantasy element? Because like also another other criticisms about it have been, or not not even criticisms, but comments have been like, even the costumes aren't like 100% Regency. And, you know, not everything is like 100% historically accurate. I mean, the question is, do we want to sort of lean into this fantasy world where nobody is othered for their race or pretend that it was sort of like a, a different version of like our world where you know this marriage sort of solved racism and then we just have to have to believe that and i think it's one thing to treat costumes as like this fantasy aspect and actual real people in race as fantasy too, to treat racism as fantasy, as if one marriage, one union, were suddenly going to make all those problems disappear. And it is interesting that when you look at it of like, who are the characters that are, are people of color within this show? You have Marina, who is the distant relative who comes in and is pregnant, and she's the only she's the only non-white person within that family there. You have this duke who's been sort of cast out of his his uh, own father's life and has had to find his own way within this family and marrying within a white family is supposed to kind of stabilize him in some way looking at modern examples of you look at harry and megan people I was just thought, gonna bring up princess diana and her <laughs> whole family <laughs> you look at harry and megan of like people like oh my goodness like we find there's finally like someone in the royal family who isn't white and you have like this amazing person who can suddenly represent so many people and but the aftermath of that was so publicly horrible on her all the criticism that she received was just awful so I clearly mean, left the royal family family yeah they left I mean it's so I mean like it's so funny that like we were talking about Diana earlier who like was a white woman and still just like faced so much like of a barrage from the press and Megan felt the same thing but like with racism and it was just clearly so bad that like they left their duties as a royal family to try and like you know create this new life for themselves and that literally happened at the beginning of the pandemic so we obviously can't observe the sort of long-term effects of that and their like little son Archie you know I feel like that's a real world example of how an interracial marriage did not exactly solve racism. No, and even you look at our presidency, like having Obama as our first black president, in no way did that solve any kind of problems. I think people were so, obviously it's historic, it's exciting. Now you have Kamala Harris, who's going to be entering as the first vice president, who's not only a woman, but a woman of color. These are historic things, but in no way is it going to solve so many of the of the problems that we're still facing within race in this our society so chris van dusen who's the showrunner of bridgerton he has this interview where he was talking about the the casting not calling it colorblind but color conscious casting and this is also something we've seen like director emma holly jones talk about within mr malcolm's list so the quote in the article was his idea was to base the show in an alternate history in which queen charlotte's mixed race heritage was not only well established but was transformative for black people and other people of color in England. So again, it's like as if taking like this one person as a catalyst for all this change. And sure, I think one person can be a catalyst for that change, but it doesn't change it overnight and it doesn't erase all those problems. It sounds like he's sort of trying to say this show is that fantasy where like this marriage happened and we sped up the clock on sort of erasing that <laughs> history or or just sort of like moving to a place. I mean, one of the article it might have been that refinery 29 article that you brought up where they use the word utopia they've just sort of like reached that point and we're just sort of watching it and being
being like, all right, proceed kind of thing. <laughs> it was great to acknowledge it, I will say. I'm not saying they shouldn't even have brought it up. They shouldn't have even acknowledged it. I think they could have brought it up in a better manner. I think if they had made that writer's room more diverse, more input within not just this white showrunner and the white author behind these books, they could have actually done something really great and unique within this world where often we've only seen adaptations with all white casts. I mean, do you think it was sort of like they were sort of trying to create a show that was sort of about race, but not about racism? I think a lot of people watched Hamilton and were like, oh, that, we should do that. That's a little bit of the ripple effect of that show of people being like, oh, great, we just need to put some people of color in front of camera and look at this, we'll we'll get all this attention and people will be so happy with us. But they're not always doing it in the best manner. So I think sometimes it can be, maybe there's good intentions behind it, but I think they don't always follow through with what the intention should be. And I mean, if anything, hopefully Bridgerton, we could assume that they could get more seasons where maybe they can dive into it a little bit more, or at least like lay the groundwork for shows to have more nuance in the sort of portrayal and like discussions about race and racism. I think they should just hire more people of color to run these shows. Yeah. (laughs) So instead of relying on white writers to tell these stories. So I wish Shonda Rhimes had just done this show is really (laughs) what I'm getting at. Yeah. Well, Shonda, if you're listening, we don't know how many very important people listen to our podcast, but if you're listening, we'd love you to uh, take a front seat to the writer's room. It was great for them to include Queen Charlotte, who is based on the real Queen Charlotte. Actually, historians are back and forth about whether or not Queen Charlotte in reality was mixed race. There are certainly discussions about it and debates about it. But again, within this fantasy world, they are saying that yes, she was mixed race. Yes, her role within this place elevated everyone. Her getting elevated to that point, then she was able to be like, yes, you are a duke now. They all have a place in society. Going back to our our conversation between the Duke and Lady Danbury, she doesn't quite have that same conversation that Olivia Pope had with her father, but she's basically telling him you should be really grateful for everything that you have because, I mean, I think it's also that thing where Simon doesn't think that he has anything. Well, because like he did, like his father didn't really love him. So I think that like the titles and the stuff, like none of it's like really important to him. I mean, he doesn't see it that way. But Lady Danbury is like reminding him that like he should be grateful for the life that he has and he shouldn't keep running away from it. It affects him because we cut to the ball. Daphne has been dancing with the prince and it's sort of obvious that he is about to ask her the big question and she's like, excuse me, I need a minute. And she like runs outside and like tries to take the necklace, which is choking her off. And then the Duke shows up and he's like, hi. And she's like, can I... (laughs) She's like, can I help you? Because you're not my friend. You said you don't, we're not friends. We're not anything. So I'm a little confused as to why you're here. He seems to just like show up to have apologized. Does he want anything from her? He just wanted to talk to her and see her. For him, it's been a day or or two or whatever. Seeing her at the boxing match was like, oh, I have feelings for her. And I've been running away from these feelings. And I didn't mean to have these feelings, but they're here. And they've both never really been in control when they're together because their feelings just kind of come out. And again, they're just magnets to one another. That's when the scandal and everything else gets really turned up on them because she becomes so mad at him that she takes off into the like forbidden mazy garden (laughs) which actually is like what happens pretty early on in book one the duke and i like that's actually kind of one of the things that spurs us on in like the middle of the book but we're in the tv show now they're in the garden he like doesn't want to chase after her because we get the sense that this is a garden that people go to hook up and so like it's almost like the garden of getting your reputation ruined he's worried about her reputation so he goes after her and then they end up kissing passionately. He gets handsy. She doesn't mind, but he still gets handsy. And for some reason, Anthony is in that garden. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Anthony's just <laughs> in the hook. Like One thing is that Sienna is actually one of the soprano singers at this ball. You're not raw. I forgot about yeah, that Yeah, because he, and- like, he hears singing and he's like, 
that's her. This mazy garden is kind of what I imagine like make out points are for like teenagers in like those in like towns where they just like drive and they park and they hook up. Like that's what this garden is to me. Anthony, I don't know if he sees this, whatever, but he runs up to them. We don't see him hooking up with Sienna, but you and I are like investigative journalists when it comes to this kind of thing. And we're like, what were you doing there? You'll marry her. What? Immediately. We can only hope that no one saw you take such liberties and that my sister is safe. Further mortification. You will marry her. Brother! I cannot marry her. Then you leave me no choice. I must demand satisfaction. A duel? You would rather die than marry me. I am truly sorry. She doesn't even like say goodbye to the prince. She just kind of like Irish goodbyes with Anthony. No one can sleep because they're supposed to meet at dawn. We're going to come back to that. So let's sort of like check in on some of the other characters, such as the Featheringtons. We are still looking for a groom for Marina. And what I really hate about this is like Lady Featherington is just like looking for the oldest, <laughs> dustiest, grossest men in the town. And they're just like, I don't know, just like circling her, staring at her. I'll try her out at the ball. Ugh. Lord Rutledge, who's like this very mm -mm. old man. And Lady Featherington is like, he's old. He's ready to get married. He will take you. There will be no questions. Like, if we're going to make this scandal go away, he's your man. <laughs> and that is not something Marina wants. So it's actually at the ball with where they're dancing together. I think they've danced two dances together, Marina and Lord Rutledge. Uh, he asks her for a third and she's like, <laughs> wouldn't that be so scandalous though? I would rather do anything else <laughs> besides dance with you again. And this is where we see Penelope and Colin Bridgerton, who are BFFs, talking and I think Colin has taken a little bit of a liking to Marina. Men were just like knocking down the Featherington <laughs> door for Marina and Colin was one of those men. And so now we're out in the wild, we're at a ball. I have been trying to get in front of Miss Thompson all night. Surely she cannot be interested in Lord Rutledge, can she? I think the only thing Miss Thompson is interested in is a swift rescue indeed. I believe you're right. Uh, Colin, I did not meet... Penelope is in love with Colin and she uh, wants the best for him, but also wants to be with him. So the fact that he is developing like this crush and liking on Marina isn't the best for her. But, you know, he does save her and they actually have a really nice time together. That's the thing is like she kind of comes away from the ball and is like, oh my goodness, Colin's amazing. He's a Bridgerton. He's nice. He's a great dancer. And... Penelope's like, all right, wrap it up. I want to go to sleep and never hear about this again. There's a conversation between Marina and Lady Featherington where Marina's like, you know, young, cute, eligible guys are coming to visit me. Why do you keep putting me in front of these gross old men? I mean, the thing to remember is like, like there's a ticking clock here. Like Marina's already pregnant. And so she needs someone who wants to get married like yesterday. And she's like, we can't risk you going out with men who are just going to like court you for weeks or even months and then get married because then they're going to be like, hey, how come like you got pregnant so soon and the baby, you know, was born at like <laughs> six months or three, like whatever it's going to be. I feel really bad for her in that scenario. But back to Penelope, this is like not a good mental health episode for her because not only is her good friend and, and distant cousin sort of stealing away the boy that she's secret, her good friend who she's secretly in love with, but she's having a great conversation with her good friend Eloise who's like, you know, I, I hate that we have to either get married or live at home forever. What, you know who I want to be like? Lady Whistledown, because she's just like some old broad who sits at home, counts her money and writes, and she does whatever the heck she wants, and she's my hero. And I'm going to find out who she is. Are you in? And Penelope's like, oh, I can't. I'm so busy. I've got so much courting stuff to do, but uh, I'll cheer you on. <laughs> and so... um. Eloise sort of visits her to say, like, I think I found out who it is right after Marina has been talking about her wonderful night with Colin and Penelope has this outburst at her friend. Eloise, I do not care. People have real problems, mature problems, problems that have nothing to do with the secret identity of some silly writer. I am out in society. Therefore, I have more important, mature things to worry about. Like what? Like marriage. 
It kind of reminded me of the disagreement between Elizabeth and Charlotte Hmm. in Pride and Prejudice, where, you know, Lizzie's sort of like holding out for love and Charlotte's like, I'm older than you and I'm just like living in my parents' house and I just want out, so I'm getting married and, you know, I'm taking it seriously. You don't have to, but I need you to be happy for me. Yeah, and I think we do see their difference in opinion because, I mean, to Eloise, she's like, but we don't want to get married. We just want to live free. We want to live our lives as free women. But Penelope's like, but what if I want that? What if I want to be married and I want that marriage and life? And I think there's nothing wrong with that. But in Eloise's mind, she's like, but we're in this together. Like, we're we're just, we just want to be free women. We want to fight against the system and society. Penelope, it's just, is like, you don't get it. It's not helping that her biggest crush is potentially going to get engaged to someone else. And in her mind, she's like, but he's getting deceived by Marina because she's pregnant and he doesn't know. So there is that extra layer. Like if she wasn't pregnant, it would have been- She would just be sad. Yeah, she would have to be, she would have to deal with it because they would just get married and it would, that would be the end of it. But because she's pregnant, I think, you know, Penelope is trying to weigh her options of like, what can I do to stop this still? She sort of has some moral issues with whoever it is Marina marries, she's going to pass off her child as this guy's child. Yeah. And so she just kind of like takes moral issue with, I mean, I think she doesn't care if it happens to some old yeah. dude, you, whatever, <laughs> but uh, like he gets his wish, he gets his heir. But like with Colin, she's like, I don't want Colin to be deceived. I care about him too much. But another issue that's happening at Shea Featherington, so far this show has set me up to like not be Lady Featherington's biggest fan because I think it feels like almost like a Cinderella kind of setup to me where like you have this beautiful girl who's sort of like of little fortune or, or less. She's almost like the wicked stepmother who's like dealing with her. But I think in this episode, we find out that like she's just trying to be the most pragmatic because Lord Featherington has been so whatever this whole time. A young gentleman caller comes for Philippa and she's like, ooh, we could have two weddings this season. And he's like, or it could be any other season. Like it de- we, there's no rush to marry our girls. So she does the right thing, goes through his stuff, <laughs> finds out they're broke. Okay, he's been gambling all their money away, including the girl's dowries. So there's no money for a wedding. And she confronts him about this and is like, I found the receipts. Obviously, that's why we have to take care of Marina too, because you owe her father money. You owe everybody money. You're going to fix this. And he breaks down in tears. And I'm like, yeah. Mm -mm. They kind of set up a bit of the preview of his gambling addiction when at the boxing match he has bet for the other man who loses and the fact that he just breaks down is like, man, you are in so deep in this debt and you clearly have no control of this addiction. It's just, it's so disappointing to see and even Lady Featherington's like, what did I marry into? (laughs) Like, what is this? So much of the show is like looking at the young people trying to find their matches. You know, I kind of don't know what a typical amount of time to be courting or dating or whatever before you got married. But like, obviously, especially back then, these were more like property, like business transactions. Like, I feel like really the 1800s, like people were just warming up to the idea of like being cordial with your spouse, especially in the upper classes where you would typically like marry for the land or for like whatever contract you needed. And then you typically have like your lovers on the side for your personal life. And they were just like not the same thing at all. So we're kind of like looking at, you know, young people falling in love for love and like marrying for that an interesting look at the older generation who clearly is like the opposite of violet bridgerton who like loved her husband they were good friends and this dude this sob like spent (laughs) all their money and like kept it a secret because he thought he could fix it didn't fix it and so now lady featherington is like well clearly i have to do everything around here i have to manage the finances i need to manage our girls getting married and now i have marina she's on our team now so i need to get her married and like that has to happen so soon because she's pregnant and it's just a lot. This man literally had one job, and that is to manage the finances of this family. And he couldn't even do that. So she just immediately goes into survival mode of like, mm-hmm. I'm going to handle this. I'll take care of this. And is very stern with him of like, fix this. <laughs> Whatever you've done, fix it. Yeah, she's like, we're not friends anymore. We're not (laughs) on good terms until you fix what you 
broke, which is our whole life. So that's what's happening over there. And then, I mean, we've already talked a bit about Eloise. Her investigation of Lady Whistledown is in full steam ahead. Uh, she actually <laughs> accuses Violet's lady's maid of being Lady Whistledown. And she just laughs at her and she's like, you really think servants have the time so she gets shooed out very quickly but another thing happening with the Bridgerton family is Benedict who we've kind of seen snippets of throughout the episodes and we're starting to see more of him but he is the second oldest son in the family and he gets opened up into this new world from Henry Granville who is another man in society uh, it was actually through Benedict criticizing one of his paintings that they became acquainted. Now he's like, so apparently you do your own drawing. Why don't you come to an event at this house, at my house? So he goes and it turns out it's this uh, scandalous art night where they are- Sort of like a house of ill repute. Yes. (laughs) They're doing nude drawings. So it's like live figures there. But he like gets in there and he starts drawing and painting and something uh henry is opening him up to is like we're the second borns of the family like we get to have all the fun the anthony's of the world have to deal with the responsibility of being uh the heirs to everything anthony's case he is head of household too so there's more pressure there uh second borns get to have all the fun and you know have no responsibilities essentially yeah and this is an interesting like real life historical dynamic that i remember learning about in my jane austen class in college which is is that essentially you wanted a male heir because women couldn't inherit land or like absolutely anything. You couldn't own things because you were a woman. The firstborn son was always set to inherit everything. The title, the property, the land, the responsibility. Like the firstborn son is always Lord something, Dukes, Duke of something. And if you had a second, third, any other son, you had to find a job because you would not inherit, you know, like maybe you could like, I'm sure every family sort of like divvies up their wealth individually, but you certainly would not be the natural born inheritor of all of this stuff. And that's where the term the heir and the spirit bear comes from because like you have the heir who is like said to inherit everything and then you've just got this other guy who like has to get a job and that's sort of like one of the main figures around sense and sensibility edward ferris played by hugh grant in the movie is like the oldest son and so he has to marry a wealthy woman because he's gonna inherit everything and he's got all the responsibility benedict i think is sort of like having an existential crisis because he doesn't have like a thing and so he's like ooh, art could be my thing. And I think that once he goes into this house and sees like how sexy art can be, because I think he's used to seeing like landscapes and he's just like bored with that. (laughs) So he's like, ooh, there's naked people here. There's people having sex upstairs. There's candlelight. There's like opium. There's drinking. Like I could hang, I could do this. I could be an artist. Like who cares how talented he is? I think he just likes having this escape. And so that's sort of like his journey. And just to take things back into the duel, I mean, one of the things we see with Anthony was he saw Sienna and it kind of stirred up all those feelings again. He's supposed to be going to this duel uh, the next morning to face off with Simon and he's kind of thinking about his own future of like what does this mean for me because duels are illegal so if they get caught if Simon dies he needs to flee the country. The His first thought is to go to Sienna's house and be like guess what? In a few hours, I'm going to be free of this life. I'm going to be free of all my responsibilities. And we can freely be together. Sienna, I think, you know, she's been strong, but she gives in (laughs) to like this one last night too. I mean, he is so enthusiastic about it because it it seems real. He seems like, yeah, he's about to literally leave his whole life behind for her. And of course, she's going to be like, finally, like it's been a bit of a hope of hers to be be with him. I think Sienna, though, is, is someone who's a fighter and goes through life just trying to figure out her next moves too so for right now it's anthony and great if he loves her she'll follow that path but it's been such an unreliable path that she still works and she still is with other people if she needs to be so i think it's not just offering that security but it's also that they 
they probably do love each other and she wants to be with him, but he continues to treat her so horribly and only goes to her when it's convenient. And oh my goodness, like this escape of his life is his dream, but he can't escape from his life. So he's dumb for thinking that he could. (laughs) I'm like very anti-Anthony Bridgerton because he and Simon kind of are cut from the same cloth in this regard, you know? Like he and Sienna have a good thing going at the beginning of this and he takes care of her. He visits her whenever he pleases and, and she's always so happy to see him. It's a great arrangement until his mom talks to him and she's like, are you the head of this household or are you not the head of this household? And then he realizes, oh, I'm sure the head of the household doesn't have like a side piece. So again, <laughs> he does that thing where he very cruelly and emo- like seemingly without emotion is just like, I can't see you anymore. And so he takes everything from her. And you're right, she is a fighter. She's been so strong when she wakes up and realizes, crap, this guy just woke up one day and changed his mind. I can't put all my eggs in one basket anymore. I do think that they love each other. If anyone in this series needs therapy, it's Anthony Bridgerton. He needs to learn how to treat the people that he loves. And I think he's just so used to having the entitlement that comes with the the titles. And and he just, he's in charge of everything. He's the man of the house and so far everyone's been okay with him like half-assing being man of the house he just like kind of makes some calls sometimes and they always suck they're not going under like the featherington so like he's not doing that bad a job what sort of annoys me about his challenging simon to a duel i mean obviously we didn't see this this is something that's purely theoretical between you and me that like i'm sure he was in that garden with sienna hooking up with her when he challenged simon to this duel there is a part of me that wonders if he deliberately put his life at risk so that he could just give up everything because like I think the fact that it's illegal is part of the plan like I don't think he wants to die but I think he wants a reason to leave this life behind and like what's more perfect than challenging the man who defiled your sister and like looking like you're standing up for her honor and for your family's honor but then immediately running to your ex-girlfriend's house and saying I'm about to be free. Like he's like emotional about it, but he, I think there's a small part of him that has wanted this the whole time because he's like, you and I can finally be together. We can finally be a thing. You know, like they hook up. She's already waiting for him in her cutest lingerie and they like have one passionate night together. Nothing changed because he left her the next day. She was awake when he left. She pretended to be asleep. She did that for him so that she wouldn't have to like give him crap the next morning for leaving her. And then they're not discovered nobody dies and the duke and daphne agree to get married so he's still the head of the house and all that talk that he had all that drunk talk that he had about like we're about to be together we're about to be free was all for nothing and i'm just like he even chickened out of his really stupid backup plan and so i'm really upset at him for putting everyone's life and reputations at risk and then like not even getting going after the thing that he did it for i think anthony bridgerton is someone who thinks like i have sisters i know how to treat women and then he doesn't know at all he doesn't even know how to treat his sisters well honestly no so yeah i mean the duel is very dramatic and simon has his gun pointed in the air to show he's not gonna shoot anthony does have his gun pointed right at simon as if to say i'm gonna kill you because i think again he is like i think it's partial rage of yes the situation but it's also partially like I'm finally out. I can get out of everything. But when he's faced with that actual moment of like, wait, do I actually need to kill my friend in order to get the life I want? He's realizing, whoa, that's a that's a really dumb plan. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> he actually does shoot. But because Daphne has very dramatically ridden in on a horse, uh, he his shot kind of goes off. And so, again, no one's harmed. Everyone's fine. There's no consequences. <laughs> no one found out about this duel. It's like, oh, okay, so we're just gonna... You could have deleted this scene too, and <laughs> we would have been in the same place, essentially, because Anthony is still head of household. I guess the only real development here now is that, yes, Daphne and Simon are engaged, which is... 
not like this beautiful romantic moment we would have expected. We would have thought like, oh my goodness, like they're falling in love, they're going to be together, and there's going to be like this really grand, beautiful moment. But no, it isn't in the aftermath of a duel on a very early morning and somewhere out in a field and it's Daphne who is declaring that they are engaged, not a formal proposal by any means. I can never give you children, but I cannot provide it for you. Nor could I ever ask such a sacrifice. There will be no need to resume. The Duke and I are to be married. We know because of episode two that he has vowed never to marry. Basically, the dukedom will die with him. In that same dramatic moment, Daphne is forced to choose like, do I want the man that I actually love? Or do I want this life that I've always envisioned for myself? And she chooses Simon and a life with him, a real life with real Simon. I mean, the prince could, it sounds like the prince wanted exactly that. He could have given her that. But in a way, she kind of got everything that she wanted, but just not in the way that she expected, which I, I think that we'll see a lot more of in the next episode. But yeah, essentially they walk away with Daphne being like, it's okay, we're getting married. No need to kill him. Problem solved. <laughs> so they all walk away. They go home before anyone notices that they've been out at dawn. The whole thing was no one can know that this happened because it's illegal. And no one finds out really. I think in the book, Lady Whistledown does have an entry that's like, there were two idiot gentlemen in the town who had a duel, but I'm not gonna say their names because it's illegal. And I'm like, you're so lucky that Lady Whistledown took pity on you and decided not to out your names because you're freaking criminals, both of you. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, it's getting the perspective of Lady Whistledown in the book versus this TV show. Clearly, she has ears and eyes everywhere and she knows all so the fact that she knew about the duel when at least in the tv show no one knew about it could show like who's potentially within that small circle of people who could possibly know about this could lady whistledown be anthony bridgerton well truly and like i mean the thing is you and i know yes. who lady whistledown <laughs> is so like but that is a good point because like you know we forget that there is this mystery that takes place over the course of the whole show which is who is Lady Whistledown. Before I caved and just looked it up, I tried to sort of reverse engineer the Gossip Girl thing because like total spoilers, but also it's your fault if you don't know this by now. Dan Humphreys was Gossip Girl. I was trying to like take out the qualities of Dan Humphreys and being like, okay, outsider, but still kind of in and like didn't have a lot of money, but still hung around with these people. But like he was exposed, but like they were exposed, but like who suffered the most? And like- If you're taking that specific description, Marina is actually a really good candidate of who could be Lady Whistledown because she is an outsider. She's new in town. This is a great way for her to make money. She's going to all these big parties and she's a talented writer from all the letters that she writes to Sir George. So clearly she's someone who would fit all of those criteria. Let us create an official pool that we're not <laughs> going to comment on until the end. Right. But you're right. I think there is, just based on the, my own personal reverse engineering of Gossip Girl, which is a completely different show, I, I think we should enter Marina as an official candidate for Lady Whistledown. Definitely. So that's pretty much where the episode ends. Simon almost dies just because <laughs> Anthony hates his life. Like I, I really think he's like 10% mad at Simon for like defiling his sister and like 90% mad at his own life. The Duke and Daphne are sort of haphazardly engaged. We'll see what happens. Yeah. So if you have thoughts on future episodes or the show overall, feel free to reach out to us on email at thepemberlypodcast at gmail.com or find us on social media at the Pemberley. Stay tuned for next week where we will discuss the behind the scenes of our short film. 